If you have your Bible, let's turn together. It's two microphones, isn't it? There we go. Okay. If you have your Bible, let's turn together to Romans chapter 16. This is probably the second to last sermon that we'll have in Romans. And then we'll move on to uh, five weeks on the doctrines of grace. And then we'll go into 1 Samuel after that and try to remember how to read our Old Testaments again. So Romans chapter 16, let's pick up where we left off last week, verses 19 and 20. In fact, I'm going to read the verses that we were in last week just for a little bit of context. Starting at verse 17, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience, here's where we are today, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There are two terms that you ought to know that are not used too often today, but ought to be, and those are the terms the church militant and the church triumphant. You might have heard those terms before, you might not have. They used to get used all the time in Christianity, but here's what they mean. When you hear the word militant, it kind of sounds bad, doesn't it? The church militant. It almost sounds like, oh, we're going we're gonna to go and fight people, something like that. Well, that's not what that means. What that means when we talk about the church militant is we're talking about you and me. If you're a believer in Christ, then what we mean by saying that there is the church militant is we're saying that there are all of those who are believers in Christ who are still in this world, where there is still opposition from Satan, opposition from the world, opposition even from our own flesh, and what we are every day is we are in the middle of a spiritual battle, whether you've recognized it or not. It says in Ephesians 6 that that battle that we're engaged in is not against flesh and blood, This is not the kind of battle that Islam teaches in the Quran that its people are to be engaged in, the kind of jihad against unbelievers or something like that. No, this is the battle of seeking to persevere faithfully to the end, despite all of the kinds of opposition that there is in this world. So that's what we mean when we say that there is the church militant. It's us. It's us who are still here in the middle of a sinful world, seeking to be faithful, to persevere in the spiritual battle that we're in to the end. But there's also what's called the church triumphant. Well, what is that? Well, right now, it's all of those believers who have gone before us and have died and are now in the presence of Christ in heaven. They are triumphant. They are without sin. They, their faith has become sight. And one day, all of us will be gathered together as one church in one place called the New Jerusalem, and we will be together the church triumphant forever and ever, no longer engaging in any kind of spiritual battle because Jesus will have finished it all and crushed all of his enemies under his feet forever and ever, as we're going to see in this passage. But it's a thing that we need to know right now. Where are we? Where will the church militant? We're in a battle every day. And as we're called to put on the armor of God, we are going to win many battles by the grace of God in this life with that armor of God put on. And as we trust in Christ alone, in Christ, not only are we going to keep having many battles won throughout this life, we're going to have the ultimate war 
one forever and ever, which was really one at the cross, and he's going to come and fulfill it at the second coming. And so that's kind of the, the, the thought that we need to have in our mind as we enter this text is, hey, we are the church militant. We're in the middle of spiritual battle every day, and he's just warned them, even in the, the verses that I read you for context, the ones we were in last week, he just warned the church in Rome that as they're seeking to be faithful in the gospel and, and to try to, to navigate some of the difficulties of, of, of relating to one another within the church, of being Jew and Gentile together and, and kind of navigating those backgrounds, all the kinds of stuff that they're in the middle of, he's telling them, hey, you need to watch out for spiritual opposition. You need to watch out for false teaching. You need to watch out for those who would divide with heresy. You need to watch out for those who would create obstacles with immoral behavior that they would bring in. You need to watch out for ungodliness and unrighteousness. And now, as he's doing that, as he's telling them, watch for these things, he's going to give them an encouragement about standing firm in the face of that kind of satanic spiritual attack. What this passage is going to tell us is that by God's grace, believers can stand firm against spiritual attack here and now, and that we're guaranteed spiritual victory in the end by the grace of Jesus. So in verse 19, if you're following along in the back of your bulletin, that's going to be helpful just to see what he's calling us to. The word stand is not here, but all of this is about standing firm in Christ. So, so that's the way that it is on that outline. But the first thing we're going to see in verse 19 is about standing obedient, standing obedient. It says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Paul kind of says, yeah, there's gonna be those who come in and bring ungodliness and unrighteousness, those who, who would be uh, trying to spread heretical teaching and ungodly living and create obstacles, but I already know church in Rome in the first century, it's well known that you are standing faithful. And praise God for that. That's kind of the gist of it. Your obedience is known to all. When he says obedience here, that goes beyond just the initial obedience of believing the gospel, which he's going to call later the obedience of faith. And he called it the obedience of faith back in chapter 1 as well. But this obedience goes beyond just believing. It's also a continual seeking to obey what God has said to submit to what Christ has commanded. Robert Haldane from the 18th century said about this, it is the greatest praise to any church or individual to obey cheerfully with a childlike disposition whatever the word of God teaches. That's it. How do you be not just a hearer of the word of God, but a doer of the word of God? You do it. I heard this, this, this little... Um, you know, these little clips come up on social media. I saw one from Todd Friel. I love that guy. And he, he was saying, well, how do you be a doer of the word? Well, you do it. You get into the Bible. You look at the commands that it has, the imperatives that are put into the words of Scripture of this is what you should do. And you say, okay, now I have read it. And now I need to do it. It's actually not that complicated. Occasionally, we, we will be praying for each other and we'll tell each other something like, okay, here, here's what you can pray for me about. You can pray that I would be faithful in my family, that I would be faithful in leading my family in 
family devotions, because I know I need to do that, but I haven't been doing that, or, or pray that I would be more faithful in my time in the Word of God and prayer. Pray that I would be more faithful in sharing the gospel with my coworkers. Well, these are the reason that those are on our hearts when we share our prayer requests with each other is that we've seen in the Word of God that those are the things that we're to do. And do you know what we can do? You can do it, Right? So if we're sitting around praying for each other to be faithful, why don't you just be faithful? If you're sitting around thinking to yourself, boy, I wish more people would pray to me that I would be obedient to God in how I conduct my family life, why don't you just do it? Uh, Rather than saying, if I could just get all the people in the church to pray every day for me for three weeks that, that I would share the gospel with my coworker, then maybe I would finally do it. Well, how about you do it today? How about you just go on and do it? This is the great thing. If you take this childlike faith that Jesus says that we must have, when you have a child who absolutely loves and adores their parents, yeah, sometimes there's not going to be perfect obedience, but the disposition of that child is going to be a a trust that says, well, my my daddy told me that I need to go over there right now. I don't know why he told me that, but I'm going to go over there. That's what he told me to do. And that's the attitude that was exhibited, according to Paul, in the church in Rome in the first century, the attitude that needs to be exhibited in our lives, and the attitude that needs to be exhibited in our church is to say, well, this is what the Bible says? Okay, let's submit to it. Let's do it. Let's be obedient to what it says. And this apparently had become known far and wide, that Rome was, was known for this. And it's similar, when he says this about your obedience being known to all, it's very similar to what he said in, in chapter 1, verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. It was well known in all the world that there was a faithful, believing, obedient church in the city of Rome. And why was that? It wasn't because they were trying to show off. It wasn't because they were hypocrites trying to live out their faith before other people and not doing it in their closet. Why why had it become well known? Well, it's because it was remarkable that this faithful church had sprung up in Rome, of all places. In Rome. It was the most important city in the world at the time. It's a place where there had been few or possibly zero visits from any of the apostles. And it was a place where there was tremendous opposition any time that any of the emperors of Rome decided that they were going to oppose Christianity, which happened pretty frequently because the Christians said that they weren't going to worship the emperors, that they weren't going to worship Jesus together with all of the other Roman gods or something like that, or I should say the Roman gods, not the other Roman gods, but they were going to be faithful. Anytime there was opposition from the Roman government, it was going to hit them first in the city of Rome. And so it is remarkable that there is a faithful, obedient church in Rome, and those Christians who had been there and visited with them and worshiped with them were going around the world and saying, they are faithful, they are obedient, praise God. And so that's why Paul says, when I hear of your obedience that's being preached far and wide, I rejoice over you. I rejoice over you because of that. That's a good example for us to follow to rejoice when we hear of the faithful obedience of other Christians, to rejoice when we hear the faithful obedience of other churches. Now what's more common than that is to hear all kinds of complaints about other Christians. 
all kinds of complaints about other churches. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of problems in a lot of churches. And you're not going to dig down on any Christian life, even a pastor's life, and find perfect holiness. Only Jesus is the perfect holy one. But what we should do when we're, when we're tempted to just constantly bear down in criticism toward unfaithful Christians and criticism toward unfaithful churches, we should remember things like this, where Paul is publicly saying, I hear of your obedience and I rejoice over it. I praise God for it. It's very easy to criticize others for their unfaithfulness, but it's very God-glorifying to rejoice over faithful Christians and to rejoice over faithful churches. So when we see that, it ought to stir up joy in us. And we ought to be willing to come and rejoice, to praise God, and to say, let's make this known. There's faithfulness. There's evidence of God's grace in this place. So stand in obedience. And then he also tells them in in the second half of verse 19 to stand wise and innocent. So he says, your obedience is known to all. So that you do, so, so that, that I rejoice. But, but he says, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You see that word but in the middle of the sentence? It's kind of saying, okay, you're doing well, but don't let that make you let your guard down. Don't let the fact that I am complimenting you on your faithfulness, don't say, okay, great, we have achieved this level Now we don't have to watch out anymore. Now we can coast. Do you know what happens when we start to coast in our Christian lives? You go backwards. Nobody actually coasts forwards in their Christian life. If if you're not growing in Christ, you are shrinking in Christ. And so that's why Paul says, all right, I praise God for his obedience, but make sure you keep growing. And specifically the way he says that is that they are to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil that reminds us it's kind of a call back to what jesus said in in matthew 10 which is part of what we prayed from this morning where jesus told his disciples to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves same kind of language there it's also a call back to jeremiah chapter 4 verse 22 where the prophet says my people are foolish and he says they are wise in doing evil but how to do good, they do not know. So there's a negative example there in Jeremiah. It's like, look around at this people who claim to be the people of God. What are they skilled at? What are they wise at? Evil. And what are they not good at? Good. That's not good. But we, as those who are in Christ, are first of all to be wise about what is good. I want you to be wise as to what is good. It's funny how it seems like everybody just kind of says that they know the difference between good and evil. And in some respect, that's true. Because it's, it's told us in Romans chapter 2 that the works of the law are imprinted on every human heart. That's what we call the conscience. The reason human beings have a conscience is because there is a God who is good, and he's written the works of the law on every human heart so that we have some sense written on our hearts of what is good and what is evil. The problem is, though, that human hearts have sin. And so it's kind of like if, you, you know, if I took this piece of paper where I, where I have this part of my sermon notes written out, 
Okay, they're, they're there, but if I, I'm not going to do it right now because it messed me up, but if I just took it and I crunched it up, just wadded it up into a ball, and then I'm trying to read it, well, are all the words still there the right way? Yes, but there's a problem that's making it hard to see what it says, and that's what happens on human hearts with sin. God still has written the works of the law on every human heart, but sin has has watered it up into this ball where things are mixed up and twisted. And so the way that the Bible presents knowing good and evil is that, yeah, God has given that conscience to every human being, but we must grow by the grace of God in our ability to know good from evil in the first place so that we can then do what is good and avoid what's evil. If you're a a Christian who's young in the faith, praise God. There's, There's a number of Christians in this room right now who are young in their faith, you, you haven't been in Christ very long. You might be young in your age or not, but, but if you're new in Christ, one of the things that I think you can see on, in your heart right now is that you know much better right now what is good and what is evil than you did before you repented and believed in Christ as your Savior. You had some idea of it before, but things have become much clearer by way of faith in Jesus Christ and his saving power on your hearts. But I could also say to people who who have been in Christ for a long, long time, maybe many decades, you can look back and say, maybe you've been in Christ for 40 years. I bet you could look back at your life and imagine where you were and what you were thinking 20 years ago. And you could say that now, you have a much better grasp of good and evil now than you did 20 years ago. As you've been growing in Christ, these things are growing, these are working out as you are exercising those spiritual muscles of walking with Jesus, as he is growing the fruit of the Spirit in you. Do you know what's happening? Well, you're you're learning by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what it says in Hebrews 5.14 that solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He says, here is how you grow in maturity as a Christian. It's not just that you keep going to church, although if you don't, you're going to atrophy. It's that you seek to practice these things. Do you know how practice works in your life? We're not just talking about doing, but even the idea of practicing to get better at something, right? We, we see this in our kids. Getting better at dance, our little girls, they're fantastic. Getting better at piano. Getting better at Rubik's Cube solving. Getting faster and faster. All these kinds of things. And you, you see that in your life. You know that. If you want to get good at something, what do you do? You practice it. You grow in skill. You exercise those muscles to get better. And that's what he's saying when he's saying here, be wise as to what is good and innocent as, as to what is evil. He's saying, bear down in practicing these things so that you can get good at this and not at that. But be wise as to what is good. And by constant practice, Hebrews 5.14 be able to distinguish good from evil. Go deep into wisdom about what is good. Of course, that's going to come from the Word of God, and it's also going to come not just from hearing, but from doing the Word of God. Be wise about what is good, but then be innocent as to what is evil. Innocent as to what is evil. The sense of of the word innocent here, innocent on, on one level, it means don't do evil things. 
And yes, that's the case. Don't practice evil. But it's kind of set up here as, as a callback. It's a play on words in, in the, the Greek to the word uh, naive, as it's translated back in verse 18, where it says that there's these false teachers who by smooth talk and flattery deceive the hearts of the naive. And, and, and it's almost kind of saying, it's not exactly the same word, but, but it's a play on it to say, here, you know what you ought to be naive in? You know what you ought to not know much about is evil. You ought to be wise as to what is good and innocent like a little child not knowing how to do things when it comes to evil. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14.20. He puts it a little more explicitly. He says, be infants in evil. Wise as to what is good, innocent little babies as to what is evil. What we're to be doing is, is to we're to be smart and well-experienced and mature and good. We're to be inexperienced and unskilled in evil. Do you like stories about silly criminals? I say silly because there's another word that I get in trouble with with my kids that we're supposed to replace with silly. So some silly criminal stories. Uh, here, here's a few headlines from uh, not too, like the last year or so. Here's one. Thieves drag an entire ATM behind van, sending sparks flying down Oakland Road. Boy. Colorado burglar busted after using Uber as getaway car. Wanted Florida man tried to throw cops off with I don't live here sign. Fugitive busted after applying for job at New Jersey Sheriff's Office. Bank robber slips teller his name and address on hold-up note. How about that? You know what those criminals were trying to do? They were trying to do evil with a very low skill level. Paul's point for us is that we ought to keep our skill level evil, or skill level low at evil as well. And I don't mean like get yourself into one of these headlines. We mean like stay away from it. It's good to not even know how to do those things. Stay away from it, whether it's evil conduct, these, these uh, obstacles that would be contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, or whether it is evil doctrine, the, this heretical causing of divisions away from the gospel that he's been speaking of in verse 17. In those kinds of things, he says, keep yourself innocent. Keep yourself almost ignorant now, I have to clarify that a little bit because we, we need to be able to see the things that are to be avoided. We need to watch out for those things, but we ought not to grow skilled in them. You may say to yourself, okay, well, I was, I was deep in sin for a long time, and if you ask me what, what is the way to get away with this and that and this and that, I've got all the street smarts to know exactly how to do it, so, but here, here's what you can do now that you're in Christ. Let those skills atrophy let those skills atrophy. Don't practice those things. Let those muscles and skills for what is evil, just let them go and grow in what is good. Don't say to yourself, as so many have mistakenly and horribly and disastrously said over the years, well, we need to get good at their game so we can beat them at it. That's not the way that the Bible teaches us. 
We don't say, well, the enemies of Christ are doing things this way, and so we need to fight fire with fire. No. We, we need to not seek to overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good, it said back in chapter 12. Right? There are also ways that, that we need to recognize that this is not just about the practice, it's not just about the muscles being built up for one, not the other. Also, it starts in the mind. If we're going to be uh, if we're going to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, we have to be very careful about where we set our minds. I'm going to tell you three ways, sadly, that I have personally seen people veer away from the Christian faith. And, and they all have to do with setting their minds on evil. One is setting the mind on evil out of love for evil saying to, to themselves, boy, if I weren't a Christian, I sure could live it up. Think of all the things I could do if I weren't under these oppressive Christian rules. Well, that's, that's not something that the heart of a true Christian would set its mind on for very long. But if you have that temptation, if you have in your mind, boy, if I just weren't a Christian, boy, I could do those worldly things, you need to recognize the truth about those things. Those are not living it up. Those are the deadly snares of the devil. They are not life. They are death. You need to know what's good and drink deeply of what's good in Christ. So setting the mind on evil out of love of evil. Another is setting the mind on evil out of a failure to be on guard against it. He, he has commanded here, you need to watch out for those who do these things. This is something that you see throughout scriptures, that we need to be watchful. We need to be on guard. And sometimes those who are, are Christians fail to be on guard, especially when it comes to those times when you, you finally just come to the end of the day and you sit down by yourself and you think, well, I'm just going to relax. And you turn on the TV or you turn on a movie and, and you say, well, this show is so entertaining, I'm not going to worry about all the ways that it glorifies evil. Or you could even say, well, I'm going to set my mind on uh, the potential political victories that I hope that we will win in this country, and this politician resonates with me so much that I'm not going to worry about all of the evil things that he promotes. Or it could be with this TV preacher that I came across. Sounds so encouraging that I'm not going to worry about all the ways that he disagrees with my church. And just not being on guard you can end up with your mind set on evil doctrine, evil practices, and veer away from Christ. A third, sadly, that I've seen is setting the mind on evil out of a supposed desire to refute that evil. I have had more than one friend who's gotten deeply invested in refuting heretical groups and then ended up joining those groups. And there have been those who've gone deep down the rabbit hole of examining the sins of the secular culture and then ended up embracing those sins. So, so here, here's what I would encourage you to do. Don't get so obsessed with proving that poison is poison that you end up drinking the poison yourself. Don't, don't, don't set your mind on evil to the point where you end up partaking of it. Now, obviously, there is a certain place for people to do in-depth study of heretical doctrines, in-depth study of secular sins. There is a necessary 
practice so that we can, as a people of God, be on guard against those things. But before you do that, here's my recommendation. If you think to yourself, I am a polemicist. I am going to start a discernment ministry where I just dig down deeply all the time on things that are evil so that I can expose them. Before you do that, sit down with your pastor. Sit down with with godly Christians who can know your heart and guide you and lay out to them why you want to do that. And make sure you're not doing it because you want an excuse to dip your toe into error and sin that secretly appeals to you. Because we need to be on guard. We need to look at, at these errors. We need to watch for them. But here's my recommendation. For every look that you take at error and sin to try to refute it, take 10 looks at Christ. And look at what is true so that we don't slip down a path of being wise as to what is evil and not being exercised in what is good. What do we do? Well, what do we do with our minds? We set them on what is good. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Set your mind on those things. Don't let what is evil take over your mind. Why? Well, it's because we're in the middle of a spiritual battle. It's a battle that God is going to win, and it's a battle that by God's grace, every single one of us who are in Christ are going to be on the winning side of with him. That's what it says in verse 20, that we're going to stand victorious. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's saying this victory is certain. It's coming. Part of your putting on the armor of God is to to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, and we need to watch out for these things. We need to not veer down those paths, but if you're in Christ, there will be victory for all of his church and for you personally. How's it going to come? Well, it's going to come by the God of peace. God's going to do it. Why does it call him the God of peace? Well, he is the God of peace. He he called him the God of peace also in in Romans 15, verse 33. And, And this God is the God who is the creator and the source of all true peace that exists. Any peace that there is in the fallen world is a gracious gift of God. Whether it's peace among nations, even peace in the church, even peace in our homes, Peace in our hearts. The only reason it exists is because of the God of peace. God is the God who can make peace where he reconciles a vast multitude of sinners to each other, who from from all kinds of backgrounds that might have been enemies in other circumstances in the world, and yet by the blood of the cross, Christ makes peace and tears down the dividing wall of hostility, according to Ephesians. God is the God of peace who can give a peace that passes understanding in our own hearts and minds as we cast our cares on Christ. God is the God of peace. You might even think of it in terms of that that Hebrew word shalom that we hear sometimes that has to do with that all-around well-being and that rest from trouble. God is the God of peace. 
What's emphasized here in this passage, in this context, is that God is the God of peace who grants peace by way of defeating all his and our enemies. God is the God who is able to create peace by taking those who would disturb that peace through ungodliness and through unrighteousness and putting them under his feet forever. It says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. That's Christ who is the Lord. He will do it. He will do it, and we have it here in this passage as well. And no matter how peaceful a country may be, it's not at peace if it's under attack. No matter how peaceful a Christian heart or a Christian family or a Christian church may be in itself, it's not at peace when it's under spiritual attack. And we are under spiritual attack every day. We are the church militant. We're still here. And so what do we do? Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he's building. The gates of hell try really hard to prevail against the church that he's building. But Jesus said it's not going to happen. Instead, God will soon crush Satan, it says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Keep in mind this is given here in the context of standing firm against false teaching, whether that false teaching manifests itself in outright heresy of doctrine or in immorality of life with these stumbling blocks. But he says all of that is satanic. And what's God going to do with Satan? He's going to crush him underneath our feet. Question as we come here, who is Satan? I'm not going to spend the entire time giving you a full theology of Satan, but It's important just to know that. You may not have put much thought into the existence of Satan. It's possible that there's even someone in here who thinks that the idea of believing in Satan is is sort of an old-timey thing, that people ought not to really think that anymore, and Satan loves it when you think that. He absolutely loves it when people think that there is no Satan and no demons, because then they're absolutely open to his work, and they don't know it. But who is Satan? Well, Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In John 8.44, Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth. He is a liar and the father of lies. Other places in the Bible call Satan our adversary, the accuser of the brethren, the ancient serpent, the tempter, the ruler of darkness, the god of this world, and the destroyer, but he's able to clothe himself as an angel of light and deceive. Satan is an angel, but he's not one of the elect angels. He's not one that we would currently be usually talking about when we use the word angel. Satan was created as an angel, but he fell in rebellion. And a third of heaven's angels also rebelled and are still working on Satan's side. We typically call them demons, but another word to, that you could use for them is reprobate angels as opposed to the elect angels. Satan is not sort of like the, you know, the, the yin to the yang. It's not as though there is a god of light and a god of darkness that balance each other out and Satan is a god of equal power with God. It's, that's not the case at all. 
Satan's a created being. He is infinitely less powerful than God. He, he has to ask permission from God to do anything. You see that at the beginning of the book of Job. But he is still quite powerful. In fact, he's more powerful than any of us, at least any of us on our own. But there's some good news here. Believer in Christ, 1 John 4, 4 says, he who is in you, that's the Holy Spirit, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's Satan. That's why we don't have to be afraid of Satan. That's why we can say, fear not those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but fear God who has the power after he has killed the, cast both body and soul into hell. We fear God and not Satan. But God, believer in Christ, is in you. And he is more powerful. Satan, in one sense, fell already and was bound during the earthly ministry of Christ and was defeated at the cross. That's in one sense. When Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the gospel, he said in Luke 10, 18, I saw, heaven, or I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And when he was talking about his, his dealings with Satan, Jesus said in Mark 3, 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it speaks of Satan being seized and bound for a thousand years. And that thousand years seems to represent the entire span of time between the first and the second comings of Christ. It says that Satan will be unbound at the end of that, and the way that he's unbound, the thing that he will do when he's unbound is he will deceive the nations into gathering together with a concerted, organized opposition to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to destroy the church. But right now, God has graciously bound Satan from deceiving the nations into an organized effort to destroy the church. Praise God for that. When, when Jesus died on the cross, it says, and then rose from the dead, it says in Colossians 2.15 that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's already won the victory. And what's preventing him from deceiving the nations is that, he's, that he's, he's bound. And even when he comes unbound, do you know what happens at the end of Revelation 20? Does Satan win when he comes unbound? when he gathers the armies of the nations against the church, against the people of God, does he win? No. You know what happens? Fire will come down from heaven and consume the enemies of God who seek to destroy Christ's church, and Satan will be thrown eternally into the lake of fire. That's what we're facing. That's why I can say the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Charles Hodge, and he's commenting on this verse, says, however much the church may be distracted and troubled, error and its advocates cannot finally prevail. Satan is a conquered enemy with a lengthened chain. I love that phrase. I, I, that, that's what we can see. We have all these debates. Does Satan have any power? Does he not have any power? Is he bound? Is he unbound? Is he able to do this? Is he able to do that? Well, here's what he is. He's a conquered enemy. But God has given him a little bit of chain. And, and the, he, he is still prowling about like a roaring lion, but his doom is sure. And as, 
as uh, Martin Luther wrote into that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one little word shall fell him. And Luther said in his table talks, he said that that word is liar. That as Satan stands as the accusers of the brethren, seeking to convince us that all is going to be lost, he's a liar. Christ is victorious, no matter what. He will win. God will win. He's not going to let the gates of hell prevail against us. And where will God crush Satan? Well, he's going to crush him underneath your feet, it says. That almost sounds gross. <laughs> but but what, what's that getting at? Well, it's getting at Genesis 3.15. When Satan had first deceived Adam and, and Eve, Eve first, and then also Adam into sinning against the holy God, plunging the whole human race uh, from holiness and happiness to sin and misery and to the certainty of death because of their sin, when Satan had succeeded in his little mission there, ultimately, he's not going to succeed. And God let him know that right up front. And God said to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know what that's a picture of? That's a word picture of, of a guy taking his foot and stepping on a snake's head. That's the picture. And yeah, maybe the snake gets some venom in. Maybe there's a little bit of injury there, but it's the snake's head that's crushed. You know where that little bit of venom went in? At the cross of Jesus Christ. Almost looked right there like Satan had won and like God was going down forever. But it's not the case. In the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus not only gave himself as the propitiation for our sins, but also won the eternal victory for himself and for us forever. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the ways that that's described throughout the Bible is that we are united to Christ. We are now in Christ. And Christ's victories are our victories. How exactly this is going to look when Jesus returns, when Satan is finally defeated, how exactly it looks for us to be partakers in the victory of Christ, for us to be exalted together in the exaltation of Christ, there's a lot of details there we just don't know yet, but we do know this, we will partake in the victory that Christ has won when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he will put Satan away forever. And not only Satan, but all who are in league with Satan. Now here's something that, that ought to put you a little bit on guard though. If you're not a believer in Christ, when he will soon crush Satan, he will crush you too if you remain in that unbelief. In Revelation 20, where it says that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, it's followed up not long after that by Revelation 21.8 which says that sinners, apart from Christ, will also be thrown into the lake of fire. You know who's going to make it not be thrown into the lake of fire? According to Revelation, it's those who conquer. What does it mean to conquer? It means to believe in the conquering Lord Jesus Christ. It means to be on his side. It means to be a believer who remains in the faith to the very end which is all true believers. 
But when you see the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, I hope that that puts a little bit of fear in you. Because you can only be aligned either with Christ or with Satan. There is no in-between. There is no riding the fence. That's why Jesus could say in John 8 to those, those religious leaders who were convinced that they were children of Abraham and children of God, he could say to them, you are of your father the devil. Don't be of your father the devil. Repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what you need to do is you need to receive his grace. It's the last part of this verse. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now that's written there as an encouragement to the believers. And before I talk about it being an encouragement to the believers, I want to use it as a call to you who don't yet believe, whether you're a kid or an adult or a guy, whatever it is in between. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe in his grace in Christ. You need to repent of your sin and look to God, not only as the God who will soon crush Satan and all his enemies under his feet forever and ever, you also need to look to him as the God who has loved us and gave his own son to be the propitiation, to to take the penalty of death for our sins. And you need to realize that it is because of your sin that you would righteously be destroyed forever by the presence of Christ. And you need to come to his presence in grace. You need to turn to him in faith, lay your sin aside, recognize that you have been wrong all along, change your thinking from loving worldly things and sin to seeing Christ for who he is and his beauty, and embrace him, trust in him alone. And you know what he does? He gives grace. It's only going to be by his grace that that happens in your life. And when it does, you're going to receive grace and you're going to receive grace upon grace. That means undeserved favor. You can't earn God's grace or it wouldn't be grace. You can't be good enough to get God's grace because that wouldn't be grace, that would be a wage. The only wage that the Bible says we can earn is the wages of sin, which is death. But then it says the free gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you need the grace of Jesus. And as us who are in Christ, we need to know that God is going to keep on pouring out grace upon grace to us all the way to the end. He will grant us spiritual victory in this life and in eternity. And so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. In terms of of our walking in that grace here and now, through spiritual battles, I I want to give you a little bit of, of... encouragement, and I don't think that this passage is only talking about having spiritual victory at the second coming of Christ. I think it is talking about that. But I think it's also giving encouragement that we as Christians can continue to have victory in spiritual battle against the, the, uh, all of the schemes of the devil that he would throw at us to, to tempt us and to destroy us, to draw us into sin. We can have victory in that spiritual battle here and now, as we face Satan coming after us, as we face the temptations of the world, as we face the temptations that well up from our own flesh that nobody has to bring to us from the outside, we can be armed for the battle 
and walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is with us now. And I'll just close by telling you how you do this. It's this. Put on, this is Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Christ who is our victor. And I thank you that even as he could have arranged things so that, that he simply came and, and conquered uh, sin and Satan, I thank you that he arranged things such that in his conquering, he also leads forth a host of captives, us who were dead in our sins, who were enslaved to sin. God, I thank you that, that Jesus came in his victory making a substitutionary sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sins, and bringing us along with him so that we can live in righteousness. God, and so that we can have eternal life by the righteousness of Christ. God, I I pray that you would help us who believe uh, as we see these things to stand firm, to, to watch out for evil, but not to get invested in it not to become wise as to what is evil, but instead to become wise as to what is good. And Father, I pray that where there are those who are still in league with Satan right now, who would maybe even resist that terminology because they feel like it's just normal life and thinking, I pray that you would open their eyes, open their ears, show them your holiness, show them their sin, and show them the grace of Christ. And I pray that you'd bring them in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.